This program is sponsored by the Codley Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Codley Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Science Clear and Vivid. Conversations about curiosity, discovery, and innovation. That summer was like one of the best summers for me in like in my life because it felt like a startup. Like everyone was working on different projects, people worked together, everyone had this vision of like we can really make genome editing like a thing for people and cure all genetic disease. Like it was just a buzz. I had the exact same experience that Omar did, which is that, you know, when you're in really a, you know, unique, like historic environment, you can see like the trajectories of science for like years down the line of people brainstorming. But to be lucky enough to be in a movement um, right at the beginning, it's just, it's just great, you know, timing. That's Omar Abadiah and Jonathan Gutenberg, young men who were smart enough, persistent enough, and lucky enough to find themselves while still in their early 20s in the lab of one of the pioneers of CRISPR. That's the gene editing tool that's revolutionizing science and medicine. In our conversation, we talk about those years working with the renowned researcher Fun Jung. That was during the fierce competition with the rival team led by Jennifer Doudna. We also talk about how Omar and Jonathan discovered a new way of using CRISPR to diagnose COVID-19, and how now that they have their own lab, called appropriately the Abu Ghut Lab, they're employing their discovery to explore how our cells age. This is so great to be talking with you both, because you're so extraordinary, so interesting. You're doing <laughs> such... Really, I, it's amazing to me. And and you're so young. It's, you, you're... <laughs> You look what you've accomplished already at, at the age. You're both 28. Uh, I recently turned 29. Well, I guess I'm yeah. well, almost 30 now. And, and, yeah, you, and I'm 30. Yeah. So oh, oh of, I'm reading old yeah. material on you. Yeah. <laughs> the, the pandemic aged us, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, can you really count that last year? I'm not sure. <laughs> right. You get that for free. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's a lot been made of the fact that you both come from different backgrounds, very different backgrounds. Jonathan from a Jewish background and Omar, a Palestinian background. And <laughs> and that's interesting in itself. But Omar, you, I've read that you feel that coming from very different backgrounds has helped your collaborative work. Yeah, I mean, I would say, uh, you know, I think having uh, kind of different perspectives has definitely given me sort of different perspectives growing up has definitely given me an appreciation for working with other people. Like, you know, I grew up like in an immigrant household, right? Like my parents came to the U.S., you know, for their PhDs. So they grew up in a totally different culture and country. And I grew up in that context, kind of between two worlds, right? Celebrating, you know, Muslim traditions, Arabic traditions, uh, but also like trying to like integrate into American society, right? Like do fasting for Ramadan while playing tennis or like going to the lab and doing research. And so, so you can get uh, mixed up. I hope you don't get mixed up and fast for Thanksgiving. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, you know, it's luckily a mistake I haven't made yet. But yeah, <laughs> but there are the times when you have to miss Thanksgiving dinner for Ramadan, and that's that, that that's tough. <laughs> I think that's one thing that's special about Boston, right? There's like so many different schools, universities, hospitals, and people come from all over the world uh, to do research here, and that's kind of that melting pot 
uh, is, has been a fantastic way to meet new people and, you know, find different people that think differently, bring new ideas to your projects. How far does that go, thinking differently? When you're working together on a problem, do you, can you trace a different approach to the lives you lived before you got into science? Uh, is, is, there a, is there a different way of looking at a problem? Does it go that far? Uh, I mean, there are different mind frames, I think, uh, how you approach a problem. You know, one of us will get really excited about one thing, and then the other person can come on and be a little more cynical. I feel like often I'm like a little bit more of a cynical thing, because sometimes I hear my mom's voice in my head. It's like, you know, <laughs> worrying about like, oh, this could happen or that could happen. But when you're thinking about a scientific problem, you need to think about, well, you know, maybe there is an alternative explanation for this great data that it was just an error. So I think we both kind of try to bring our own perspectives to the table um, when just approaching science. Because, you know, science, it's this iterative process where you're just kind of, you know, building together and trying to explain what you see and then take the next steps to explain what you see after that. You both have worked with a great researcher in a great lab, Fun John. How did that come about? For me, I was struggling in grad school to find the right fit for where I wanted to do my PhD, a lab where I could really pursue interesting engineering problems, like engineering proteins for therapeutics or engineering cells or different molecular tools to chew up DNA and correct them. Um, and I had heard about a paper that Fung had published. It was very recent at the time, one of the, one of the first CRISPR papers in mammalian cells. And I got excited about it. This is back before CRISPR became a huge big deal, right? This is like the early days when it was really just a paper at the time. And so I emailed him over the course of the year. His lab was full. And he kept saying, oh, I'm too full, I'm too full. And I emailed him like probably seven or eight times until he eventually was like, okay, finally there's an opening. You can come in this summer. Just stop emailing me. <laughs> um, and so that summer was like one of the best summers for me in, like, in my life because it was at a time where Fung was still free. So he was at the bench doing research. And my rotation desk was like right next to his bench. So I was literally in lab till midnight working. And I was like talking to him like almost on a daily basis just about science or ideas or learning from him. And I found that super exciting. And then the rest of the lab was also buzzing. Like, it felt like a startup. Like, everyone was working on different projects. People worked together. Everyone had this vision of, like, we can really make genome editing, like, a thing for people and cure all genetic disease. Like, it was just a buzz. And it was a really exciting place to be. And I learned so much, literally working seven days a week, like, all day, every day. And so, by the end of it, like, I had been very productive because I was working so much. So, Fung was like, yeah, it'd be awesome if you joined our lab. And we had become friends by that point. And that's how, like, I got set off in the lab. And so Jonathan, you were already in the lab, right? Yeah. Yeah. So my relationship with Fung started basically the very beginning of my last semester of undergrad, where I was a senior and I was you know, kind of looking to find a class to, that would be like kind of fun. And I was browsing to the course catalog and I saw that there was a course offered on genome editing. And this was in January, 2013. So, um, the, you know, Fung's big paper um, on using Cas9 in, in mammalian cells had literally just come out. And so I think it was, I was a little late on uh, registration. So I, I remember I emailed him and I still have this email where I'm like, oh, you know, I'm super interested in all your work and, you, you know, you're working optogenetics and genome editing and everything. You know, is there still room in this class? Can I, can I still join? And um, I, he must have had an easy day because I think he responded to me. Uh, I didn't have to ping him again, thankfully. <laughs> then, sure. I think it was like one or two word response. And I thought I was coming to this lab. I mean, 
Fung obviously wasn't as, you know, round as he is now, but he was still like, you know, I thought it would be kind of a, you know, a large class or something that, but it was, it was a very intimate setting. It was me and two other students and Funk. It was just, you know, I had the exact same experience that Omar did, which is that, you know, when you're in really a, you know, unique, like historic environment where it's, you can tell that the energy and the excitement and the creativity there is just overwhelming. I remember one day there was a brainstorm and, you know, everybody got into a room and we were thinking all the things you could do with Cast 9. It's like, they, you can see, like, the trajectories of science for, like, years down the line of people brainstorming. Not all of those were done in the lab. Some of them were done by other labs. But to be in a, you know, to be lucky enough to be in a movement um, right at the beginning, it's just, it's just great, you know, timing. So now we've mentioned Cast 9 twice, and we might not be keeping <laughs> some listeners up to speed on that. Sure. Give us a quick rundown about what Cast 9, we can talk about Cast 13 later, but let's talk about Cast 9 right now. What's a, do you, have you developed a quick shorthand for, for folks who aren't up to speed? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Cast 9 is just a name of a protein. It's basically a protein that lets you have a tool that lets you manipulate, you know, uh, DNA and information in cells. And uh, that's at a very abstract level. At a more concrete level, it's, you know, actually a bacterial defense system that protects bacteria from viruses and infection. Yeah, that's so fascinating to me is that you borrowed this ability actually this protein, I guess, from a bacterium that could defend itself against a virus by f finding the virus, finding the something in the virus and cutting it up, right? So there's two, yeah. two functions. One is finding it, like running a search on my computer for something, and the other is cutting and pasting. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's, I think, one of the marvelous, the great things about biology is that we take our findings in biology and we use them to build new tools to make more discoveries where we, you know, borrow or steal from nature. So you were working on Cas9. Yes. Had the term CRISPR come into existence already? Yeah. So the idea of this, you know, the broad overarching term for all of these bacterial immune systems, CRISPR, yes, that was in play then. But, you know, when people were thinking about CRISPR, they were really talking about, you know, using this specific protein, Cas9, to do the genome editing. And I think that assumption that Cas9 was, you know, the only CRISPR system and CRISPR protein that could be used for genome editing, breaking that assumption was a big part of our work in graduate school. Because this idea of CRISPR, which encompasses the larger adaptive immune system, um, it isn't just Cas9. And so that's where we get into the discovery of these other proteins that we helped discover, Cas12 and Cas13. Cas12 and 13. I've only heard about Cas13. You got to tell me what Cas12 does. But before we get, <laughs> before we get to that, I, I, there's so much to ask you about here. I, I'm kind of interested in the history of the discoveries. It seems that you and, and the folks in your lab were working on CRISPR at the same time that Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier were working on the same thing. There have been so many races in, in science. Watson and Crick is a great example of that. Yeah. 
What what was that like for you? What, what did you feel like you were in a race that you were rushing? Yeah, the pressure was on. That was part of the reason why the lab felt full of energy and was a buzz because people were working around the clock to try to get these manuscripts and discoveries out. And you know, there were the times you get scooped and you know someone else publishes before you. But it also accelerates everything. Like you know, we were working harder, faster. You know, papers are coming out faster, so the science is moving faster, and people build on it much faster. So I think you know, overall, it really is. Uh, I think a positive for a field when you do have that layer of competition. And, and looking yeah. back, you know, even though there is this aspect in science where you do want to publish first, it's two things. One, you are building upon so many previous discoveries, right? Because, you know, our work in Fung's lab and Fung's work that wasn't with us, and then Emmanuel and Jennifer's work, those were all built on discoveries, you know, dating back, you know, decades and decades. And it's also, you know, Despite the competition, it is very, you know, there's, there's still, still this camaraderie where, you know, people that we were, you know, quote unquote, competing with, like people in Jennifer's lab, were actually, you know, you, you get to be still very good friends with them. And we maintain good friendships with people who were in Jennifer's lab at the same time as us. It seems that it, it almost didn't matter that somebody got to the finish line ahead of you on cast nine because then you said, we got cast 13, we can go too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the funny thing is, even though with cast 13, you know, it was also a back and forth with Jennifer. From the first cast 13 paper, they published theirs like a month after ours. And then it, the cast 13 stuff started the whole CRISPR diagnostics race. Tell me about that, too, because that sounds so fascinating. So CRISPR diagnostics, yeah. I mean, that whole like aspect is, you know, that's one of the examples of finding something that's really unexpected when you're doing these studies. And so the history of that is that we were characterizing this new protein, Cas13. Um, <laughs> to tell you a little bit of inside, it actually used to be called something else, C2C2. But, you know, these names just change. But, you know, as you described— <laughs> I, did, I didn't understand a word of that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we just had a different name for it back in the oh, day. Oh, I see. Cas13 used to be called C2C2. But— this protein, Cas13, um, as you described, Cas9 does two things, right? It guides to an area, it, it goes to a sequence, and then it cuts that sequence. And that's what we thought was happening with Cas13 for the longest time. And we kept doing a lot of different experiments under that assumption. But what we found out was that inside of a test tube, it was actually going to a sequence, identifying that sequence, and that sequence activated the protein. And then the protein kind of went haywire. It cut up what it was trying to cut, but it cut up a bunch of other stuff in the solution too. It would start basically cleaving everything. So it's like you have this kind of trigger that activates this, you know, not scissors, but blender, where <laughs> you can now, you know, if that sequence is there, turn on the blender. But what does that mean? Well, it means that we can dope in uh, another piece of, you know, nucleic acid that we can detect when it's cut. So when that blender is activated, we can actually detect initially by a glowing signal, but we worked on it a couple different iterations and it actually almost works like a pregnancy test now. But you can basically say the blender has been activated. It's cut this little thing that we doped in. That means that sequence was there. So it allows you to kind of figure out that the thing you were looking for in the solution was there. And now we can use that programmability of CRISPR to say, well, I'm going to program this enzyme to go and look for the sequence of COVID or the SARS-CoV-2 genome. So I can say, is 
COVID in this sample, and then it'll become activated, that blender turns on, and we can detect that. That's the general principle behind CRISPR diagnostics, that this totally unexpected property of these enzymes cutting with this blender-like fashion um, allowed us to build an entire, you know, framework of detection and um, diagnostics. We actually teamed up with Fung's group again that last January because of SARS-CoV-2 and the whole COVID pandemic. We we uh, had a lot of people start emailing us in early January um, about what was happening in China and Asia and were wondering if CRISPR diagnostics could help. And so we started releasing CRISPR diagnostic white papers and protocols end of January, early February, um, and then spent a, lo- a good part of the previous year publishing papers on how to use it um, and actually released a New England Journal of Medicine paper last September, testing over probably 400 patients with an yeah. optimized version that you could run in your own kitchen or like point of care for rapid testing. And then we're still working on trying to get like a small device that people could use to test themselves in any setting at home or anywhere with CRISPR diagnostics. Yeah. So it's still a very active area for us. And I mean, it's a huge field now. So many people work on it. So Sherlock is the name you've given to your work with CAS-13. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. You know, when you talk about a diagnostic tool, I I naturally think of things like COVID. But I've also read that you can use it in industry, in agriculture. How would it work in a situation like agriculture? Well, for agriculture, there's a couple of different ways it could work. For one, and the obvious is infectious disease. There's, you know, probably 10 to 20 different viruses that can devastate someone's, you know, cornfield or soybean crops or tomato plants, right? And so if you want to be able to rapidly figure out what's going on, if you see like some plants that don't look healthy, if you could have a little paper test where you take some leaf that doesn't look great and, you know, crush it up and put it in your test, you could identify like the tobacco mosaic virus or tomato mosaic virus or whatever virus before it spreads too much and someone's field. So that's one, much like you would detect bugs for humans, you can detect bugs for plants in the field. The other is for uh, surveilling traits. There's a lot of concern about, you know, modifying plants and what seeds are modified, what are not. And can you tell if you look at like a corn stalk, like can you tell if it's been modified or not? So having ways to just immediately tell in the field, like which genetically modified traits are in which organisms could just help with surveillance for those types of things as well, which, you know, governments and different groups are interested in. The really great thing about developing tools is that people, you know, have amazing imaginations. So we developed this Sherlock test and then we, someone reached out to us from UC Davis who wanted to use it to track smelt like fish populations Mm. in the wild. So the idea is that these fish that you want to track, they're releasing their DNA. It's called environmental DNA into these estuaries. And the concept is that you can sample water from these estuaries and then track these populations and see, oh, maybe (laughs) the fish are doing well or there's an invasive species. So I think one thing about making tools that's so fun is that our imaginations, they're limited, right? We can't think of everything we can do with a tool. But then once you put it out in the world, people have great ideas. When we come back from our break, Omar Abadiah and Jonathan Gutenberg tell me how in the Abu Ghud lab, They're using CRISPR to find out how our cells age with the goal of finding ways to rejuvenate them. Our program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation with a mission to advance science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is implemented internationally through a constellation of Kavli Institutes that support scientists who conduct 
basic curiosity-driven research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience, and also by the Kavli Prize, which honors scientists for breakthroughs in these fields that transform our understanding of the very big, astrophysics, the very small, nanoscience, and the very complex, neuroscience. And the mission of the Copley Foundation is also implemented by programs that support public engagement with science, enhancing how society encounters, interacts with science, and uses science in their daily lives. This is Science Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Omar Abadiah and Jonathan Gutenberg. What about this amazing thing that I heard about finding aging cells in the blood? Are you using Sherlock for that? And what what is that? How how did you get into that? What that sounds fascinating. Yeah, I mean the sort of aging literature is something we used to discuss all the time as graduate students, and uh, it's something we always wanted to get into. It actually has nothing to do with CRISPR diagnostics or any of that work. It was just you know we make a lot of gene editing and you know cell perturbation tools, right? And we are wanting to apply them to interesting problems. And one of them is the aging of cells. You know, can you use these tools to sense why cells age? And can you use them to revert cells back to a more youthful, rejuvenated state? It's kind of an age-old question. Um, and we decided to tackle it in the blood because the blood has had all of these interesting findings where, you know, if you give young blood to old people, it has been shown to rejuvenate almost every organ and tissue, right, from proving memory cognition. Get out. No, come on. That's not, <laughs> yeah. not <laughs> You're turning us all into Draculas. <laughs> Are there people who actually do this, who put young blood in their bodies? Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, it's based on like a couple decades of literature, including from, you know, people in Boston and the West Coast, the really, really good uh, articles. And then people have started doing like human trials on this. And, and in the Bay Area, it became almost like a, a meme at this point of, you know, people looking for like young blood donors to, to rejuvenate, you know, old people. So how do you know you're not getting blood that's got something in it you don't want? <laughs> I think there's probably some sort of screening process, but, um, you know, I think we're really excited about understanding these, the mechanisms behind these, you know, just fundamentally the, all the different modes of, you know, aging and how we can develop therapies on a molecular level, because, you know, at the end of the day, we want to understand what's going on. But I think we're just very lucky to have been, you know, around, you know, at the right place in the right time to be able to have, you know, whatever role we could in this like enormous revolution of, you know, biotechnology and genome editing and CRISPR diagnostics. It really, you know, puts stuff in perspective. If I had not sent that email for that class, I probably wouldn't be doing research here now. So who knows? Um, but yeah, it's uh, been a wild ride. <laughs> Well, thank you so much. This has been a wonderful talk. We, we end our talks with a, a, a list of seven quick questions that invite Ooh. quick answers. Interesting things I want to hear from you as scientists. Can you remember what the first thing was that you were curious about in your life? That's a really good one. Well, I was lucky enough to kind of grow up in a family of, you know, medical doctors. Both of my parents were uh, physicians. And um, my dad 
would take me to the hospital. He was actually, he was a pediatric uh, hematologist oncologist, but I would see him working and trying to cure these patients where their own bodies were attacking them. And, you know, it made you, made me think, you know, why do people get sick? You know? How about you, Omar? Yeah, mine are more like, uh, like engineering questions because my, my dad was a civil engineer. And yeah. so going over to see his workshop and lab, there were a couple of things that would always be conundrums to me. For example, he used to run a team with his students to make concrete canoes and then they would race the canoes across the lake. And for me, it was always confusing. How could a concrete canoe float? <laughs> but they found ways to design them such that they actually could float and they could race them. Um, and sometimes there were the poor teams where the concrete crumbled in the lake and they actually wouldn't <laughs> have to swim back to shore. <laughs> but it was questions like that or like why bridges, you know, can carry weight with like a bunch of triangles in, in their frame and like, you know, learning about trusses and triangles and load bearing. Uh, yeah. So it's a lot of stuff like that, not, not medical or cell related. <laughs> Second <but. laughs> question. Newton said, if I can see farther, it's because I stand on the shoulders of giants. Who, whose shoulders are you standing on? Oh, I, there's probably too many, like, things to list. I mean, obviously one person, I think, you know, Fung uh, had a, a, a really large impact on our scientific uh, careers and how we can think about, you know, how to approach a problem. Um, but, you know, it's the many mentors you have on the way, you know, in high school and undergraduate teaching. I think that's that's the people that, you know, have helped me get to where I am. Omar? Yeah, I, mean, I think that's a great answer. Obviously, our mentors have su had such a huge role in shaping who we are and what we've become. I mean, I would say like every week I'm like a kid in a candy shop with all the new papers that come out. So many of our ideas come from just that constant bombardment of like, you know, good science. And yeah, I don't know. I know that's, you know, not one person, but, you know, <laughs> so it's definitely uh, it's definitely an interesting time we live in with with the amount of productivity going on. Okay, next question. What part of your research do you enjoy doing the most? Uh, I would say for me, you can probably count yourself lucky if you enjoy maybe 50% of your job. Because anything you do, right, there's going to be the overhead, the fundraising, the grants, the management that you probably don't enjoy. But I would say, like, I think with this job, like, I enjoy probably at least 50% of it. And a huge part of that, I think, is the data collection. Like, when you do an idea and then you see the data and, like, it, it validates your idea or your hypothesis, it's like a rush like none other. You're just like, wow, that's amazing. And you live off that high for a day and you wake up the next day and you're like, wow, I need that again. And then you go back at it <laughs> trying to pursue ideas. And I, I really feel like I live from moment to moment sometimes for those. And the rest is, you know, the BS every day of, you know, just like, you know, managing a lab and, you know, mentoring. And then mentoring's not BS, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know what I mean? Like, uh, the, the, <laughs> mentorship is actually one of the great pleasures of the job. But I was like, gonna, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, what about, but yeah. before he yeah. goes too far, what, yeah. what, what about you, Jonathan? I was gonna, I mean, the data rush, yeah, that's certainly a, a feeling that, you know, nothing can replicate. But yeah, I think that, you know, in mentorship, you know, paying it forward in terms of, um, you know, we've been so lucky to work with great people. And then, you know, I hope that we can be good mentors to the people in our lab um, and being able to see them when they kind of leave, seeing that what they've learned and those times when they have that flash of insight that you can recognize, oh, you know, that's like me when I was, you know, in their shoes yeah, so I think that's also a, a pretty pretty rewarding. Okay, here's another one. As a scientist, what was the best moment you've ever had? Oof. It's probably like data related. <laughs> like there's that insight when you're like, you know, you you grind your head so hard against the problem and then it kind of like clicks. I think that's that's 
you know, pretty great. And, and that's happened in a couple different projects. Like, for example, in um, CGC, sorry, the CAS 13 um, project, when we kind of finally understood what, how it was cutting up this, you know, stuff in solution, how the blender really worked. I think that, you know, breakthrough was really, really rewarding. Um, and there's, you know, a couple that happens every so often. Um, but I think, you know, you have to look at it. It really is uh, a marathon and not a sprint. And you kind of have to find the happiness in the day-to-day um, where, you know, just coming in and, you know, chatting with people, I, you know, being able to hang out with Omar and, you know, just throw on ideas. How about you, Omar? Yeah, I would say there's probably two things. One, the first is, I think, related to what Jonathan was saying, there's two styles of projects. I would say there's the ones that are a slog and, like, you spend years working on them, but then maybe eventually they work and that's amazing. But then there's also the style of project, like the CRISPR diagnostics, where you have a moment of insight and you test it. And, like, in a week, it's like, wow, this is going to be a paper, you know, in, like, in just a matter of months. And that was really cool. And I would say the second really amazing moment in science is when someone leaves the lab and you just see how much they've transformed over, like, a few years of working with you and learning and and their growth. And that's always, like, special when you see someone just uh, coming out of your lab and, you know, totally different, jazzed about science and, like, ready to go tackle the world. So I think those are the... Yeah, the two things. Yeah. Okay, now, next one is similar, but the opposite. What was yeah. the worst moment you can remember in your work? Oh, oh man. <laughs> like too it. many to, to name. <laughs> I think, you know, it can be really bad when, you know, you, you know, have invested a lot into a project. And, you know, there's many things that have to go right in science where you have to test one thing and then you say, okay, this works. Let's test it the next thing. And, you know, sometimes you get to a point and that stuff kind of falls apart where it's like, oh, you know, we thought this is how it worked and this really isn't how it worked. And it was all, you know, an artifact or, you know, it works really well in a dish and, but it doesn't work when you try to actually use it in, you know, an animal model, like put it into a mouse. Mm. So I think those are kind of the dark days where you just kind of, you know, say, ah, what am I doing? Am I spending, like, you know, I'm working so hard on these problems. Do they even matter? But I think it's important to be able to, you know, go through those and kind of like take a step back and be like, you know, science is built off of, you know, so many failures. You have to keep doing things and keep exploring and not everything will work. I mean, that's what's called research. Um, So, yeah, but it can be a real punch in the gut when that does happen. You didn't finish the butt of that the joke. It's called research because the re is for repeat. Well, yeah. Just keep keep repeating until we're done. (laughs) Um. I guess for me, it's it's probably accumulation of like thousands of cuts. I, I would say, you know, I think the transition from grad school to running your own lab was very tough because you realize like science is basically just rejections. It's like your data rejects you, your ideas reject you, you fail over and over, grants reject you. You know, we probably, we must have applied to like more than 50 or 60 grants at this point. And you only get like a handful of them, like maybe four, five, six of them. Um, So most of the time you're being told, no, like we don't want to fund this idea. We don't want to fund this project. So I I find those moments uh, tough, especially when you're starting out and like funding is really important and, you know, you're not as well funded as the large labs. So I think just realizing that like, you know, life is basically mostly rejections. You just got to enjoy the the, the wins, the few wins that that come across. So in the face of all that to to pursue a brave idea, you need a lot of confidence. And that's the next question. What gives you confidence? Yeah, I think it's tied with all of these different aspects of, you know, saying that it's like you got to enjoy the day to day and, you know, 
if I fail, I fail. Um, and it's a little bit of confidence to say, you know, you know, this would be so cool if it did work. Retaining that kind of like childlike wonderment of saying, wow, I'm so lucky that I get to go in every day and try to understand how the world works and build ways to, you know, help other people understand it and maybe even build ways to, you know, cure or diagnose disease if I'm lucky enough. So I think a lot of it is not confidence, but confidence that comes from gratitude. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's <laughs> it's something I'm always looking uh, looking inward for. I mean, there's like different things, like looking for sources of, uh, sources of inspiration. I mean, even yesterday, I was like marveling at the NASA Perseverance Twitter account of like they like videotaped the landing of the rover on Mars. Like you can literally see it landing, and I'm like, this is the most amazing thing I've seen. And like that level of inspiration gets me excited to go tackle like my own work, even on a day where you know things might not be going well. Or honestly, the people like brainstorming with. I mean, having John. Jonathan, working with Jonathan is like awesome because that keeps me sane and having someone there to to help you through the struggle or just, you know, our colleagues like brainstorming with them. Usually like, you know, when things are rough and you go brainstorm with someone like that, I don't know, is reinvigorating. So I don't know, you, you do have to be active. You've got, you've got to like actively seek inspiration and ways to rejuvenate. But yeah, it's, it's definitely, it's not the easiest of jobs being, being a scientist. Yeah. But. So let me ask you one last question. How can we help people, more people, enjoy a love of science, people who are not themselves in science? Yeah, I think the great thing about science is that there's so many ways to approach it. That means that's very personal to each person. But for me, science isn't like a bunch of facts sometimes you think about it. It's a, it's a really powerful way to understand the natural world. And it's basically a tool that humanity invented to take all these wonderful things that occur around them and systemize them and, and try to understand them so that we can then use them to improve our lives. People can get back into it in so many different ways, whether it's, you know, through a, a neat little kid's book or through it's a, a video on YouTube or through, you know, the Mars rover landing. Um, so I, I think that just having all of these different ways to go into science and see that they're all connected is um, a, a great avenue to building a love of science. Yeah, no, I think I think it's a great question. I mean, I think it's important to make science accessible, like doing stuff like what we're doing right now, like talking about it and yeah. like uh, sort of making it clear also like why it is we do what we do. Like I think it really is like, you know, chasing a puzzle. And I think for people who are interested, like in puzzles and, you know, problem solving games from a young age, like that is literally science as a job. Like what we do is just chase like interesting problems all day. And I think, you know, I had that love growing up uh, for those types of things and like even logic games. Um, and I think, you know, if, if you want to have that as a career and get paid for it, that's, you know, this is <laughs> the job for you. So, yeah, I actually think, and there's one other yeah. thing, which is that, um, you know, I think that in popular media, it's really, you know, as, as you're well aware, you know, uh, television and movies are a, a powerful medium to be able to convey things that are, are, are very pertinent to either, you know, political issues or scientific issues. And, you know, it's actually been crazy to be able to watch things like the X-Files and see them mention CRISPR in it or, um, so I think, you know, as you get these new, new generations of, of kids growing up and seeing, you know, superheroes and stuff. And I, 
for example, Iron Man, how people are, you know, I, I can't tell how many like incoming MIT students are just marvel at, you know, the, the power of engineering. I mean, I double majored in Mechie at MIT. I can tell you everyone in the Mechie department wanted to be Tony Stark. So yeah. that definitely has a role. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, role models either real or, you know, in, you know, uh, in fiction, I think can really help people connect with these, these things. That's great. I I really uh, love it. You've opened my eyes to a lot of stuff today. What a wonderful conversation. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, this is a pleasure. Thank you so much for the opportunity. This is really fun. Yeah, thanks for having us. This has been a delight, uh, delightful conversation. So Thank you both. This has been Science Clear and Vivid. My thanks to the Kavli Foundation for sponsoring these conversations about how breakthroughs in science, technology, and medicine often begin with simple curiosity, asking of nature, why is that? Omar Abadiah and Jonathan Gutenberg began their careers in Fun Zhang's lab at the Broad Institute in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Their new Abu Gut lab is in the McGovern Institute just down the street from the Broad. You can check out what they're up to there at abugootlab.org. That's A-B-U-G-O-O-T lab.org. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to the Science Clear and Vivid podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next time on Science Clear and Vivid, I talk with Dr. Kizmikia Corbett. She's the scientific lead of the coronavirus vaccine program at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at the NIH. The work of her team is one of the reasons the Moderna vaccine was developed in months instead of years. We talked a day or two before I was to get my second shot of the vaccine. Some of the really cool things that we started to understand about the coronavirus spike protein really helped to fuel this rapid vaccine development for SARS-CoV-2 and the COVID-19 vaccine. So the protein that you're getting when you get your second dose tomorrow by way of the messenger mRNA is a so-called pre-fusion spike protein. So it's basically the protein that gives you the best immunity um, that you can have. Dr. Kizmikia Corbett not only played a key role in developing the Moderna vaccine, she's now using her ties to the Black community to encourage people who are wary of vaccines to get their shots. Kizmikia Corbett, next time on Science Clear and Vivid. For more details about Science Clear and Vivid, and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram, at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter, at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>